Welcome to Addiction Nonfiction, hosted by family recovery advocate and writer Annie Highwater. This is a podcast of real conversations and true stories from people who have been affected by or active in addiction. Each episode will tell real, raw, sometimes unbelievable stories, opening up the lives of various guests. The goal is to take a deep look into topics related to addiction, alcoholism, family dysfunction, codependency, and other various types of madness, the real-life stuff we all experience. You can reach Annie by emailing annieunhooked at gmail.com. And now, enjoy the show. Welcome back to this week's podcast. I have a very special guest to introduce. I will just go ahead and read your bio before I have you come on and actually share your voice with us. We are having Dr. Dan Skinner, who is Assistant Professor of Health Policy at Ohio University's Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine in the Department of Social Medicine on the Dublin, Ohio campus. And you'll have to correct me if I get any of this wrong because you have quite a bio. He earned his PhD in political science from the City University of New York. Dr. Skinner teaches and researches about U.S. health policy and is active in health policy advocacy especially in areas of healthcare access and healthcare reform for vulnerable and underserved populations. He is currently the co-director of the Osteopathic Health Policy Fellowship, associate editor for the Americas for the peer-reviewed journal, critical public health, and director of Ohio University's Comparative Health Systems Cuba program. Dr. Skinner is in the process of completing two books. The first is a collection of that is co-edited with his OU colleague, Dr. Berkeley France, which is on the, co- the opioid crisis in Ohio. And that will be published in the spring of 2019. The second book examines political debates over the meaning of medical necessity and is likely to be published in late 2019 or early 2020. He has published more than two dozen articles in healthcare policy and politics and is often invited to write op-eds and commentaries and speak on health policy in the media. So let me just start by saying, to lead into this conversation, it's really difficult right now to be unaware of the current condition of our culture. We are in a crisis of addiction as well as mental health. In fact, in the front page news this week, there was coverage of a rally for depression and suicide. In our hometown, we have people jumping off parking garages. That was in last week's news. I saw a commercial for PTSD as I was preparing for this podcast. And there's daily coverage about opioids, addiction, and overdose numbers. Nationally and locally, we are in crisis. So today's conversation is focusing on a topic that is daily making the news. And that is to read a line from Dr. Dan's article. On Tuesday, November 6, 2018, Ohio voters will vote on Issue 1, a constitutional amendment known as the Drug and Criminal Justice Policies Initiative. Dr. Dan Skinner is here to give us an understanding of what Issue 1 means for those affected by addiction. So I would like for you just to explain kind of in layman's terms, you know, I'm a mom. I don't, I'm not a big follower of politics. I probably have eighth, ninth grade knowledge at best of politics. I, tr- I tend to try to stay out of that and focus more on the emotional therapeutic side of, of recovery. I'd like you just to go into explanation of what this issue is about and what your take on it is. So welcome to the show and please take it away. Great. Well, thanks very much for having me. I mean, I, I know that this issue is, uh, issue one is, is controversial. It's not understood fully by a lot of people, which is not that 
unusual for much of what gets put before voters on election day. Unfortunately, um, people often vote with a kind of half knowledge and policy itself is never certain either. And I think that's something that a lot of people wrestle with. Big change in policy is always going to have a few question marks with it. Human beings don't always want to jump right into something that can have some outcomes that are not absolutely certain. Issue one, um, in my view, it's a, what, what issue one is, is a proposed constitutional amendment, as you mentioned. And it, so it's not a bill. It's, a constant, it's an amendment to the Ohio Constitution that would essentially decriminalize nonviolent drug offenses. Now, that's a fairly radical, pretty major change from our history, which has largely been a law and order criminal justice approach to those struggling with addiction. As a result, as we'd expect, require then that a whole host of actors around the state start to think differently about people who are addicted, who might have been caught up in our various drug laws at some point. In that group, I would include you know, prosecutors who are mostly opposed to the, the bill. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Maureen O'Connor, has spoken really um, strongly against issue one. You know, people in the law and order prosecution world and the, the Bar Association, things like this, they think in terms of law and order, so it's not surprising that they've resisted this. What the constitutional amendment would do would essentially limit charges you know, stemming from drug possession to misdemeanors. It would limit what courts can do to past felony offenders on probation, um, and specifically you know, keeping them from being returned to prison for non-criminal probation violations. People who are convicted with drug charges being sent back to prison for things that are small, comparatively small, non-criminal violations of the terms of their probation. The idea is to keep people out of jail and in treatment and in a rehabilitative framework as opposed to a criminal justice framework. I think that maybe, like a, to paint a picture of it, would it be kind of the difference between an 18, 19, 20-year-old kid who's low-level selling to support a habit versus someone who's big-level network cartel? Is it kind of differentiating between the two? Well, no. So in issue one, um, and this is really important, and you know, the attorney general and the, and who's running for governor uh, has really been misrepresenting this, I have to say. In fact, you know, he, he had a, an advertisement that he's been running on TV. This is Mike DeWine's advertisement, PolitiFact, which kind of looks at ads and judges their veracity, has declared the ad to be false. And the big distinction is issue one does nothing for those who are considered dealers at all. So if you are charged on a dealing crime, issue one does nothing. It does, issue one does not wipe any of the laws clean that regard dealing. Um, it deals explicitly with people who are caught with possession charges. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously it's a really important distinction that's, you know, it's important to a lot of Ohioans, especially when we're trying to deal with drug trafficking and taking that seriously. And we're, you know, looking at fentanyl and just you know, all, all those kinds of um, dimensions. But issue one is very clear on that. It's around, it's around possession. I'll also mention uh, one of the things that issue one would do that's really important is um, would really provide resources and in fact, reward prisoners for steps they take to rehabilitate and educate, educate themselves. And one of the things that a lot of people who are supporters of issue one are most excited about is that all of the money and the criminal justice system, the, 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 
you know, penitentiaries and the jails and all these things are very expensive. All the money that would be saved by not incarcerating these people would be by constitutional amendment um, required to be reinvested into rehabilitation and um, treatment centers around the state. So they're hoping that money can actually be redirected in a way that will have a really enduring effect. Treatment versus jail is what I know a lot of families are wishing for. And and I think that's an important point, which is when we think about criminal justice reform, the law and order folks, like I think they're sincere. They, they, They care about people with addiction, of course, and they care about they're not unkind people. It's just that they tend to think in this way. So it's the way they think that, that shapes their approach. The hard part is to get them to see you know, that this could be their kids or this could be, they, how would you want those around you to be treated in a situation like that? We tend to talk about law and order, criminal justice issues as though it's about other people. If there's anything that I hope is good that could come out of the opioid crisis we're right now in, I would hope that it would be people stepping back and thinking about how they would want their loved ones treated if they got caught up in this now that we realize and we're talking openly about how easy it is to be caught up in it. It has to hit home. For for people to care about an issue, it typically has to hit home. And in fact, I had somebody stop me in the hallway at work a few weeks ago and he was talking about how his son is a sheriff's deputy and has been on the scene sometimes four times in a day of somebody needing Narcan. And he wasn't a medic. I don't, I'm not sure why he was called to the scene, but he said, you know, how many times is enough? And I said, well, when it's your son, you do it until. So it, it has to hit home. It has to affect you personally, I think. And I think you're doing a good job of opening the eyes of people to think about putting themselves in the shoes of an addict or their family member. I've highlighted a couple of things from your article. One of the things I love that you included was the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep. How he said, smart policies are those that improve society and do not exist merely to punish to no positive effect. Not looking to merely punish and condemn. Yeah, I mean, there's a framework. I'm a political theorist by training. So in in the history, you know, there are different categories. So retributive justice would be the kind that just kind of makes people pay. But we need to do things that 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 might not be part of our law and order, punitive, retributive tendency. We all get angry. We all want revenge. But revenge really isn't a productive thing. We need to heal our state. Mm-hmm. And that means we need policies that allow us to do that. And I'll also mention, I mean, from retributive policy generally doesn't work. I mean, so like, you know, people talk about this with regard to the capital punishment, which is not at all related to issue one. Well, it is in the sense that we're not going to ever be using our capital punishment laws for those involved in just you know, drug possession. But capital punishment has never really deterred anything. And it's pretty well documented at this point. So that's something that criminal justice people have been putting at the feet of supporters of capital punishment, which is it's not really preventing crime. It's not really doing anything. Why, Why do we have policies that don't really have any kind of forward moving effect? The same is true with the way we've been treating nonviolent, and I want to emphasize nonviolent drug offenders. These are not people who raped or murdered or manslaughter or anything like that. Uh, these are people whose crimes are just limited to um, drug possession for the most part. What we've been doing hasn't worked. The war on drugs was a failure. It obviously didn't solve the problem. It made some people feel tough. It made for some really good political ads um, that we, you know, we've seen for decades now. 
and and it might you know play a role in our gubernatorial election. We have some some big tough talk here about this kind of thing, but none of it is actually going to improve our state. I like how you said that people think that prison is a safe place for addicts to detox and be rehabilitated, but the opposite is true. Prisoners often report that prisons are hotbeds for drug use. Often the opposite agenda takes place. Yeah. And I'll tell you a heartbreaking story and I'll keep it anonymous, but you know, I know of somebody who, um, who was trying to rehabilitate from addiction in, in prison and, you know, to escape the circulation of, of drugs within prison had to ultimately sign themselves into uh, solitary confinement. I mean, drugs are, we, we have this idea that in, you know, our, that prisons are these locked down places because that's how we think about them. But those who actually live in those places know that they are in fact just as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable in them, which should really give Ohioans pause about what we think our prisons are doing about what we, it's easy to get in this idea that it's like this detox experience where you just start living life without that, but that's just not what it is. Um, They are microcosms of our society. And to some degree, they're exacerbations of the same problems that are in society, except that people have nowhere to go and fewer resources. And certainly they can't turn to family or loved ones. And some of the resources that all of us on the outside would turn to. I was just in the news an Ohio prison had fentanyl coming through the heating vents. Yeah. I believe everybody talks about how a tiny little bit of fentanyl can do, you know, big damage. And that should also give us pause about how easy it is for this stuff to move around. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it has to hit home. I like how you, and you said earlier, we asked that you imagine yourself in the position of an addict. I, I think that is something that has to really be driven forward for people that just have no comprehension. I was even reading some of the comments on the news story of issue one, and they're just so hateful and they're so lacking in compassion and empathy whatsoever. It's just that, well, they're addicted. They made a choice and there's no regard that these were athletes that were injured or these were people that went overseas and served or were injured. You don't know somebody's story that led them to addiction. So you can't really say they chose it. They just deserve this fate. So if you could, I don't know how to get it through to people to just put yourself in the position or to, you know, imagine somebody that you care about. One of the things you said was whether you know it or not, it's likely that someone or multiple people you know have been affected by opioid addiction. And at this point, it is in every community. Every, it's in every church. I don't know how to, how to let it hit home for people until it just does. One of the things I've been saying to people and thinking about this my thinking over with the opioid stuff in, in the last year or so, but also just drugs in general uh, throughout our history. We need some humility. We need, if anything could come of this, it would be, I would, I would choose humility if I could have one thing. And that is to think, if you think you're such a good parent and therefore have done everything right to make sure this doesn't happen. Only thing I hear when I t- hear people talking like that is, is a blind spot is the fact that they are actually more vulnerable to being shocked that in fact it is right in their house and that it has affected them. And I just want people to open themselves to say, this could be me. What would I want to happen? Because we know from, you know, basic sociological theory, 
if you know somebody who's experienced something, it changes your policy dynamic. Here in Ohio, for example, one of the most obvious, it's a different example, but I think it's representative, is when, you know, when Senator Rob Portman announced to the world that his son was gay, he supported marriage equality. You know, you just wonder, well, what if, what if we could all realize that our kids are potential addicts or that maybe somebody would need welfare at one point or somebody would need X, Y, or Z policy? You know, that starts us to do not the, not only is my son or daughter or my friend or my husband or whatever in a situation, but what if they were? And it's the what if they were that is really hard for people to do, it seems. But it's one of the most basic exercises, intellectual exercises we can go through to be empathetic people. Yeah. And we don't do it very well at all. No, we, we really don't until something hits home and kind of, I mean, I, I just know for a fact that life can drop anyone to their knees in a moment. And so you have to stay humble and open that this could happen to you. Anything could happen to you. But I don't know why that's so hard for us initially to come to that perspective. I don't, I don't know why, but it's but certainly well, we, it's, it's It's an abstraction. And that's why, I, I mean, again, I'm saying I, I hope we can get this from, it, it, we need to find pearls that we can take from this current phase of addiction to become better. And I, I think that we, we need, that, this, that would be an advancement in our society. That would be the sign that we are actually advancing as a people, that we don't want to be those people. I was talking to a rabbi recently at a local synagogue who was trying to find to, ways to talk to her uh, congregation about this. And, and I said to her, you know, even though this hasn't become a public issue in the congregation yet, what I would like to say to a congregation of a synagogue, a church, or whatever, um, an Elks Club, I don't know, is let us not, let's, let's not make the first time we actually take this seriously be when this actually has hit one of us, right? Because that's, that's too late. And it's, it, we were given these great brains to do good things we should be able to get ahead of the curve on these things, not wait until it happens. Right. I agree. Exactly. And I don't know what your personal experience is, but I've come across only two people. I have get a lot of messages and letters every single day from families that are affected. I got a message a couple of weeks ago, ironically, from a professor who said, I was going to come to one of your book events, but in cruel irony, I found out that my wife has been hiding a two-year-long Vicodin addiction, and it all came to, to, came to present itself that weekend, and had no idea that was going on in the home. Other than that, I, I have gotten to know Deputy Rick Minard. He's the chief deputy of Franklin County. He runs the Hope Task Force, and he's been on the podcast before, and in talking to him, he has such a compassion, especially from somebody coming from law enforcement and it's seasoned law enforcement. He has such a compassion for people who are addicted. And I asked him, what is your personal experience? And he said, I can tell you, I've never been up close to it, but I started spending time around the families in these communities after arresting them and and being on overdose runs and taking them in handcuffs. And I started seeing the effects on the families and it opened my eyes that these were good people. And I had also come to acquaintance with somebody through my job. He and his wife come to all of my events and they go to all of these opioid conferences. And he's so 
well-versed, even in this issue, he knows the fine details of it. And I asked him as well, his name's John, how, why do you have such a heart for this? I've just been around the families. I started meeting the families and going around the families and I realized this is every family. He hadn't really had it up close and personal. So it's profound when someone does wake up and have compassion without having it wreck through your lives and mangle your own family to wake you up to it. It's it's astonishing to me, but I wish there were more like that. So I don't know if you're one of those or you're one of us who have been impacted. Yeah. And I will say, you know, to, you know, Deputy Sheriff Minard, uh, but also sheriffs around the county and Lucas County and, and elsewhere. I have heard and spoken with many people in the law enforcement community who have described their last years of being you know, in law enforcement as one of a transformation. I mean, you also have people like the sheriff of Butler County who's just continues mm. to, you know, basically three strikes and you're out with Narcan and yeah. very like judgmental. Some of the sheriffs who really do talk about how they've had to rethink what they do as sheriffs. I mean, most people in law enforcement are trained in a certain way. They weren't trained to do this kind of caring work and to think in this way. And some of the best sheriffs and law enforcement generally around the state are the ones who have really had to learn how to do their job in a new way because of the prevalence of addiction. The question for me to come back to issue one is, can they push that further to start to think in terms of policy? So they're already rethinking what it means to be a law enforcement official. They're already learning new strategies for working with communities. Can they actually start to think outside of the law and order, the, the criminal justice, the you know, corrections model? And that's harder for those folks. And I, I'm not saying that judgmentally. I'm saying that's the world they've come up in. Mm-hmm. Um, convincing them that there are other ways is not going to be easy. But I do think that ultimately that's the only thing that's going to really get us where we need to go. Yeah, I agree. There's a Dr. Whitney that I believe he's the head of Shepherd Hill, and he's mentioned in the book Dreamland. His approach is wisdom and accountability, but with compassion. And I think it's that compassion piece that's missing. And it's, that is at the root of what's needed for a solution, in my opinion. Yeah, but also the word accountability, again, that's another one of those words where accountability, responsibility, they often end up being defaulted to a criminal justice model in our state. And the other question is, there are other kinds of accountability. And we as a society can come up with other ones. Like we can be more creative than to think about, you know, prison terms. Uh, We just need to, and this is really what issue one does. Issue one kind of says, look, we're going to remove this crutch that you've all been using of using this as your, you know, the old saying, you know, if all you have are nails or if all you have is hammers, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and this kind of like says, I know it's going to be hard and the legislature, you know, people who support issue one, they admit this is a constitutional amendment. The legislator is going to have to act to adapt and to find some new ways, but you don't actually get the legislator to act in that kind of a way unless you remove the crutch from them and say, think differently. And that's what this does. Yeah, and it's hard to get into somebody's thinking. (laughs) So speaking of those who think in opposition, I wanted to read some responses to issue one and see what your take is on their view of it. So if if you don't mind, I'll just read a couple. Yeah. Uh, Okay, these these were public statements that I've gathered. The first one I will read is from Judge Jody Thomas, who has taken over 
Franklin County Drug Court. And she says, many citizens have reached out to ask my opinion on issue one. I've spent over eight years working in the drug courts, and I am now the presiding judge over the HART program, Helping Achieve Recovery Together, which is the opiate-specific drug court in Franklin County Municipal Court. While I believe the issue one has good intentions, I stand behind the following statement by 15 municipal judges to oppose issue one. Please read this. So this is her statement on it, and you can just dispute any of it. Feel free to interrupt. As Franklin County Municipal Court judges, we are tasked with the responsibility of sanctioning convicted drug offenders and trying to direct them to treatment while holding them accountable for their actions. While we agree with this spirit of issue one, we strongly disagree with the proposed language and urge voters to vote no as all of us oppose it. Franklin County has seen a significant rise in fentanyl-related deaths in the Franklin County Municipal Court is on the front line of this crisis. Issue one reduces possession of 19 grams of fentanyl from a felony to a misdemeanor, despite the fact that 19 grams of fentanyl can kill 10,000 people. If issue one passes, a person would need to be convicted of possession of fentanyl three times within 24 months before a judge can consider jail time for possession of such a deadly drug. What is your take on that? Because I really honestly have, I'm, I'm not informed enough. So inform me as if you were, I guess, teaching a class on it. Yeah. So let me just remind, you know, listeners, I'm a health policy professor yes. and I'm not a lawyer. Uh, so it's within that spirit that I want to make yeah. the comments. I'll just start with one thing and I just, cause I, I want to just, you know, I think there's some serious and really important things in there. The 19 grams of fentanyl being able to kill 10,000 people just sounds, I mean, the, the assumption there is that you would, you know, break the 19 grams of fentanyl up into tiny little bits and disperse them to 10,000 different people. And it's just, it's a rhetorical excess. I think right. I see that as just being kind of like mathematically uh, this, you know, but, and I, I mean, I don't want to minimize the dangers of fentanyl, but I do think you need to call out rhetorical excess in thinking about the issue. I've tried to think about the issue and I think other issue one supporters have tried to think about the issue in a really careful and understanding way. And I'll just tell you, I mean, I'll put up put my cards on the table. I frankly don't think our state has the guts to pass issue one this time. Really? <laughs> I, I mean, I it's not like I'm, my voice matters so much that I'm gonna sabotage any voting and you know for November sixth. But I, I think a lot of people who support issue one know that this is pushing a conversation. It this really is, is trying to open a door. Yeah. But you know, the issue one supporters are get, you know, getting a lot of pushback from a lot of very powerful forces in the state. I mean, the issue one proponents, I mean, are getting a lot of pushback. Let me just say that, that, you know, I just, I think we need to be careful about the rhetorical excess. But to the point that the language, and I wish I could go back, I wish I had it in front of me, because the language itself was very important. Like, we're trying to do this. We're trying to push people toward treatment while still holding them accountable. And the, the thing that strikes me there is it's exactly what I said to you before. When when I hear people talk about holding people accountable, I hear in that echoes of our criminal justice incarceration model, which is, it's always a backstop that we're going to try to go the treatment route, but there's always prison. What that ends up becoming, in fact, is always prison. You know, because as you know, and your podcast and your work, and he is yeah. so much about recognizing the difficulty of really seeking treatment. For example, and people pointed out around Ohio, I mean, there's so few treatment centers in so many of our, our counties. 
there are paying for them, getting a spot, uh, and, and just the kind of social supports that exist uh, between the spaces of treatments and between support groups and all the kinds of things that all these people who really are just desperately, I mean, most addicts, they really want this to stop. They don't know how to do that. Right. And our state is not giving them the means. And when we have prison as a backstop, we can always default to that. What would happen with issue one, and I'm admitting this is a dynamic change that would force people to think in new ways. So never an easy sell is it would essentially say, so you're trying to get people to treatment. No, you better succeed. You better figure this out because you don't have that crutch anymore of turning this into a criminal justice matter because we know it doesn't work to do that. And we know it's not humane to do that. Now that you've, have, you've had that option taken off your own table, you're going to figure it out. The legislator is going to have to figure it out because we know, I mean, lots of societies have figured out how to handle addiction um, in better ways than we right. have. Right. So it's an interesting policy dynamic. It's pulling, it is, you know, some of the critics of issue one have said it's kind of pulling the rug out underneath the drug courts. And it is. I really do. I want to just admit that. I think to some degree it is because it's saying, because you're using using that as a crutch, it doesn't work. And we're forcing our society to take a step forward. Definitely interesting. (laughs) Society doesn't move quickly. Usually I had an attorney tell me over the weekend that Ohio is like three states ahead of every other state and that other states will call her and say, okay, what is Ohio doing about this or that? Because a lot of it started here and a lot of policy is forward here. Would you agree with that? I would. And one of the things that issue one opponents have said, and I just think it's it's not true. I think even Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor said this herself, or it's certainly in the spirit of her criticism of issue one, is that issue one would leave Ohio with the weakest drug laws in the country and kind of make us a target. A, we have been a target for a long time already. And B, that's just not true. There are many states in the in the in the country that have more or less humane or you know, less punitive, less criminal justice-centric uh, approaches. This issue one would not put Ohio out of the mainstream for forward-looking progressive states that are taking on addiction rather than locking up addicts. Right. Okay, this is a statement from a mother. She says there's she has three kids with the disease of addiction, and she works for Vivitrol, and it has been in and through the Ohio, the Ohio drug courts. Her statement is, there's lots of noise now on issue one, and there have been lots of over-exaggerated things spreading around. No murderers, rapists, and child molesters will not be getting out early if it passes. Just many, some predict up to 10,000 who are imprisoned for cr- drug crimes like possession will. Okay, I can agree with that, but here is what concerns me. Are counties ready to treat these people, to house them, to get them jobs? No, no, and no. I can assure you they are not ready for that influx today. If we want to do this as a state, and I hope we do, first we must get things in place. Let that many addicts out now with no plan, the overdoses and crimes will soar. That, and then her next point was the, the 10,000 fentanyl point again. But I'll let you speak to her point of it, it's expensive. Well, are we ready for these people to be released who are addicted back into society? What is your take on that? Somebody like that speaks with a lot of authority on an issue like this. Obviously, we need to take seriously the points she makes. But I, I will say she kind of articulates the same dynamic that I was articulating in a little bit of a scarier way. She's kind of imagining the doors of 
Ohio's prisons opening and um, people who are addicted flooding out and then with no resources. What I find kind of interesting is this is where policy can be very frustrating because she's just saying our state has failed to build the infrastructure to actually help these people. How is our state ever going to build the infrastructure to help these people is my way to flip her narrative. Yeah. You know, well, one way is by saying we, I mean, we have, Ohio is such a, a paradoxical state. When I talk to people about Ohio, I say, we have two of the best children's hospitals, two of the top five children's hospitals in, in the country, but we're like 46th in infant mortality. You know, we have the Cleveland Clinic, but look at our cardiac statewide. We can do amazing things when we have capacity to do it. We have great institutions. We have a vibrant health workforce that just needs to be deployed. And we also need more people. I mean, I work in a medical school. We're trying to train physicians who are going to be trained in things like medical medication-assisted treatments. People are carrying Narcan all over the place from librarians yeah. to uh, you know people working in big box stores. We, we've figured things out. I, I, I don't want to dismiss what she's saying. But I also think that she articulates exactly the dynamic that we will never get out of that cycle if we think like that. And I think that our state's capacity is actually much greater than we know it to be. But also, as I mentioned, the real story is, you want to see how fast the Ohio legislature acts if we you know, change the, the dynamic from an incarceration perspective to a public health perspective? They will act fast because they will have to. And that's the thing that a constitutional amendment does as opposed to a bill. Bill can come and go, can be repealed, can be not signed, you know, whatever, struck down by the courts. Constitutional amendment can't. If issue one would change the entire culture of how we think about this issue, would it be easy? No. Um, But I also think that what issue one, issue one does not speak to you know, uh, the election day is on a Tuesday and then on Wednesday we're going to have 10,000 people who are going to have no supports. The state can act to do a lot, uh, to, to, to take an approach towards this that would um, help those people. Well said. Um, I, mean, I don't know if it is well said. I, I also want to validate what she's saying. Right. The way, the way I'm billing issue one, the way I'm talking about it here is to say, yeah, this is a yeah. throwing down of a gauntlet and saying, we're not doing this anymore. This well, I like how you have such respect for her perspective. Well, I think you have to, right? I mean, the way she, I think she would want nothing more than for her children to have adequate supports. And don't we all? Well, I've heard it said, and I would have to agree being one myself, that it is the mothers who are kind of rising up out of the ashes of this epidemic and forcing the issue. And it's the moms who forced, moved the needle with the mothers against drunk driving. It's sometimes the grieving, angry, worried moms that rise up and have a strong voice. So I would hope to be one of those. I think that's right. I think, but I, I'll just put a plug in for dads. I mean, I think, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things that, Like I'm a New Yorker and when I moved to Ohio, we have sports, of course, in New York, but Ohio is like sports and (laughs) you grow up and, you know, talking to just how many um, people who have been struggling with addiction came out of the sports world from sports injuries and thinking about, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to be gender stereotyping here, but, you know, I've talked to a lot of male coaches and football programs in particular, and they know what's going on there. Those kids get hurt and they don't say anything. 
and they end up finding their way to some oxy in their mm-hmm. neighbor's medicine chest. Right. Actually, addiction found its way into my home because my son was injured in football. Mm-hmm. And my mother was injured in a car wreck, and she was always a little church lady that was given a prescribed addiction. So that's how it came in and devoured our family. I have a statement from a parent organization, and it was more general. The leader of that said, I personally feel this issue has opened the door to getting things done. And you see that with Klein and O'Brien talking. We definitely need something done. I'm just not sure about this bill, but it has people talking. And for that, I'm so thankful. And these are, you know, the parents' perspective. I think you see a lot of concern and uncertainty and you see fear. And I have some other political comments, but it's really right along those same lines of the 10,000 people that can be killed. And I just think that there's not clear understanding. This bill seems to have risen up pretty quickly and there's not clear understanding yeah, and, and and again, it's not surprising. You are trying to shift the paradigm. People use paradigms to try to explain why challenges are not a good idea. I mean, Zach Klein is is a good person. He's doing good things as city attorney, but he's an attorney and he thinks like an attorney. And I'm glad that he's talking to other attorneys and to other prosecutors. That's a good thing. Ultimately, it's funny, again, I teach at a medical school and medical students and physicians will come to me and say, we need more doctors in um, policy. And I'm like, well, that's true. I would like to see more doctors voicing their opinions. But doctors can't just come into health policy issues and think like doctors. They need to think about the big picture. They need to think about what's best for not, for example, doctors, but for patients and for populations. So we're all trained, right? You know, I'm trained in health policy. Somebody might be trained as a dental assistant and somebody might be trained as, um, you know, an accountant and see the world in that way. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we want accountants involved in policy just thinking like accountants. We want them thinking like parents and brothers and sisters and, you know, more humanizing things as well. I think, so again, not to criticize Klein or other prosecutors, but I'm glad they're talking, but I I don't ultimately think that prosecutors and attorneys are going to solve this problem if they just think like prosecutors and attorneys. I agree. You know, I have our Franklin County Coroner coming on in a couple of weeks, and I've sent out a little bit of a poll of what families would like me to ask her. And a lot of them are coming back with the human response. As a mom, how does she see this as a member of our community? And, and I really think it matters to bring it down to the human level. Yeah, it does. And that's why I'll just mention, and I, you know, issue one gets wrapped up as we would expect it would in the opioid situation, which is a, a, you know, a current thing right in front of us. But, you know, our drug laws have destroyed communities of color They've removed entire generations of black males from families and really just had this devastating effect. On the, and it's funny, like here we are talking about, you know, here you and I are two white people. We're having a conversation about how we need to become more humane about our drug laws. And a lot of people of color in our state are saying, where were you guys in the 80s? Yeah, wasn't it wasn't called a disease then when there was a right. pandemic, right? And nobody was talking about how my son needs to be treated humanely and go into a drug court yeah. and seek rehabilitation. They were just locking them up. And it was an absence of mercy and empathy. Yeah, so you know, are we going to go through this again? Well, you know, if there's anything that can come from something like this, maybe it could not just be about treating the present moment 
to use George Bush, right? Kinder, gentler way, but to actually make sure this doesn't happen again and to make sure that we improve. We can't just wait for the next crisis to come because I've got to tell you, if the next crisis, without something like issue one, the next crisis comes and it is not predominantly one that affects white folks and and a lot of affluent white folks I don't think we're going to see such a kind narrative around it. And I want to make sure that we have a way of dealing with folks who are not as politically empowered as well. And that's something that good that could come out of this opioid situation, in my view. Yeah, I agree. Um, on a quick side note, just before I close, I wondered if you had heard of the Lynn Bias Law. I know about it. Maybe you can tell me. It's kind of starting to build momentum and, and pick up speed through different states. They're passing it. I'm not sure which ones. But Lynn Bias is the basketball player mm-hmm. who overdosed on or had a heart attack, I guess, when he used cocaine. So it's it's a, based on co-using. So if you've got, you know, say, uh, like a Bonnie and Clyde situation, boyfriend, girlfriend, or two friends that are using and one goes into overdose, the person gets, I believe, a mandatory eight-year prison term, which in opinion of a lot of people that work in the treatment industry will cause issues for calling 911 or resuscitating. There's been a lot of work in our state for Good Samaritan, so I don't know that Ohio would even give the time of day to that law, but it is building momentum out west. I will say, and I wasn't going to go down this route, because, but I think it's important, and I so that that is familiar now, and I just you know, I appreciate you explaining it. You know, this distinction between dealers and users is blurry. Mm-hmm. If anything... Mike DeWine and some of the critics of issue one have tried to, as you said, you know, make this about, oh, we're actually de facto going to be letting dealers off and all this kind of stuff. If anything, the issue is that everyday users, people, just a parent who says, oh, my kid is an addict and just gave some drugs to a friend. If anything, it goes the other way. If anything, those people can be caught up in, 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 in trafficking charges faster than they know. And then somebody goes from realizing that their loved one not only is a user with a problem, but has been caught up in Ohio's laws and is being classified as a trafficker when any common sense or standard, you know, kind of understanding of the situation would say, that's, no, that's not, that's not what I think of. When, when we think of uh, trafficking, we think of, you know, large organizations that are transferring, you know, fentanyl down Route 70 from other places, not a kid who gives his girlfriend a bag of something. Right. And so when I hear them say that, I hear a lot of uh, ignorance about it, but also a a lack of kindness and thinking reflexiveness about, um, you know, what these situations are actually like and how fast you can go from being somebody with a problem to somebody who is regarded by our criminal justice system as a real menace. That's true. Yeah, it can go from zero to 60 really quick and, and take a turn. Just like, you know, the proverbial good family, I'm doing air quotes, right? The proverbial good family all of a sudden enters into the world of addiction and now you're the bad family. How fast can you go from the good family that you thought you were doing everything right to being the one that people are pointing to and saying, hmm, what did they do? Well, that's because it's slippery. That's because it's way more amorphous than people allow for. And 
a more humane approach would understand that life can change in a second. Yeah, no two situations are really alike. It's it's almost an as-needed basis, case by case. And at least mm-hmm. that's how we see it when it comes to treatment. You don't. We never know what's going to cause someone to get it and want treatment, but the families are in this panic, so desperately wanting them to get it, so they'll run with anything that they think might work. That's why people ran with the tough love and the su- surprise party interventions because we are so desperate to raise that bottom and figure out what helps them to get it. But some of them get it gradually. Some of them get it when they're in terrible circumstances. Some of them just miss their old life. It's different for everyone and everyone should be handled somewhat accordingly as much as possible. Yeah. And like I said, with humility, humility, realization that that could easily be you. And if you don't think it could, you're probably not paying attention. You're probably not. And trust me, I grew up on the front row of pews of churches all over this area. And I know it has been rampant in every family that sat beside us. So it can happen anywhere. I just want to say in closing that, you know, at the core of all of this, in my opinion, this problem with addiction, this epidemic, there's trauma and there's family relationships are disrupted. There's a great need for connection, understanding, and compassion. Um, And as you say, this is going to require reflection and compassion. That's truly the baseline. And in my opinion, whether issue one passes or it doesn't, this is a social concern that affects every community. It's in our hometowns. And opening minds to compassion is the bottom line necessary step towards solution. That's my belief is that is the first step. I wholeheartedly agree. I think a little compassion would go a long way. And compassion is rarely found in the criminal justice model even as well-intended as those who support it may be. I would agree. And I'm, I'm so thankful for the work you're doing. I know you've met with families from all over the state. I'm really excited to not only read your book when it comes out, but to be a contributor. I'm super supportive to your work and I'm very grateful that you've come on. Th- I just, I can't even thank you enough. I want to um, ask if there's anything you want to let our listeners know that you're working on specifically. And if they want to get in touch with you, is there any way for them to do so? Yeah. Well, let me just say, since you mentioned the book, so to the listeners, you know, Annie is a contributor to a collection that me and, as we mentioned at the outset, uh, uh, me and a colleague, Dr. Berkeley Franz, who's also at Ohio University at the College of Osteopathic Medicine, have put together. The book uh, has 50, more than 50 contributions representing 22 counties in Ohio, uh, all sorts of different people. The book will be out in the late spring at some point. Uh, we have a nice forward that Governor Ted Strickland wrote. But I, I, I'll say, you know, when we sat down to put the, the book together, I thought, you know, in my mind, I guess I'm an academic who thinks that I'm just task-oriented. I didn't realize how uh, many stories there were going to be and what it was going to be like on a daily basis to hear them and to listen with people and to talk with them and to get to know them. Yeah. And um, once you have that experience of talking with people, you can't think the same way again. You can't just go back to the, you can't go back to an abstracted model when you're thinking about real people all the time. And that was one of the reasons why uh, I'm so great to, to get to know Annie, to do things like this. Look forward to many more opportunities. I will say, since you mentioned, I mean, uh, you can, I'm on Twitter at, um, at Daniel R. Skinner would welcome meeting people uh, through there as well. Absolutely. We're looking forward to your work. And again, I can't thank you enough. And until next time, I wish you well. Bye-bye.
You have been listening to Addiction Nonfiction. Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode by the guests belong solely to the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the host or any affiliated organization or institution. You may contact host Annie at annieunhooked at gmail.com. We hope you'll keep coming back to listen to Addiction Nonfiction. Fiction.